what age do hormones start declining? 25 or 30. And from there, it's just downhill. Statistically, yes. You use it or you lose it. If you use it and you have good diet and good exercise, you can maintain a lot of your strength and body composition into older age. So you have an 80 or 90 year old male. What's the highest testosterone you ever seen in someone like that old? 900s. Wow. Was yep. he just thriving? Uh, endogenously produced, of course. He didn't have metabolic syndrome. He didn't have sleep apnea. He was very active. He exercised a lot. He dieted a lot. He slept well. So he had a lot of the pillars of health checked off. I'd love to talk about the six pillars of health. So the first two are diet and exercise, and those are pretty self-explanatory. Sleep, sunlight, uh, stress, and spiritual health. And then uh, Rich Roll convinced me I should add a social health as my final seventh pillar of health. Um, I think the last two to three years have been a good example of why social health is particularly important. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to thank you for tuning in and supporting the podcast. Now, we just launched and released a new flavor of whey protein, and this is my signature flavor, quite possibly the best flavor of whey protein we've ever created, and it is key lime pie. If you like key lime pie, you're going to absolutely love this flavor. Even if you don't love key lime pie, you're probably still going to love this flavor. It's a limited launch, so once we're sold out, we are sold out forever. You can go to the link in our description and use code NICKBEAR10 to save 10% off your order. So go try our key lime pie away protein and let us know what you think. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Kyle Gillette, owner of Gillette Health, whose practice includes preventative medicine, aesthetics, sports medicine, hormone optimization, obesity, infertility, integrative medicine, and precision medicine, including genomics. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How you been? I've been well. It's good to be back in Texas. I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. I'm super interested in optimization, human optimization. I think it's taken too far, and I think I've taken it too far at times. But specifically, kind of as we've talked about back and forth before we started recording, hormone optimization. I've experienced crashes to my hormones over the last couple of years that I contribute or attribute to training, stress, lack of sleep, being an entrepreneur, building a business. But I'd love today to dive into your six pillars of health and hormone optimization. Certainly. I suppose you have a fairly unique viewpoint or empathy towards three main groups of individuals who tend to struggle with hormone optimization, bodybuilders, natural bodybuilders. Uh, well, all bodybuilders actually, and entrepreneurs, and also um, endurance athletes. So you have um, experienced all three, and I would assume that there is a lot that we can go over. I know um, I've seen your recent labs, but uh, looking forward to the discussion. Absolutely. Well, I'd love before we kind of dive into this episode, if you could kind of give some background on, on your, your medical experience, um, kind of how you fell into this lane of study and where your passion really exists in in medicine and specifically preventative medicine. Certainly. So I've known that I wanted to be a medical doctor since I was 12 years old. My father is a family physician. He's practiced for more than 30 years at a faith-based practice. He delivers babies. He sees newborns in clinic. He sees geriatric population. So um, think of doctors like us as kind of the last of the Mohicans, full spectrum 
doctors. So I knew I wanted to be a family doctor. And as I went through my medical education, I tailored my education to be able to take care of people holistically, body, mind, and soul in many different ways. And um, one thing I noticed is everybody told me, don't do family medicine. That's where people that don't have, um, you know, like that's where you go if you have bad scores or whatnot. There's a huge stigma against doing family medicine, even though it's um, the most complicated field because you have the widest breadth of knowledge that you need to be well-versed in. And then I wanted to be good at things that are common. So obesity and metabolic syndrome. I got board certified in obesity medicine as well. And uh, hormone dysfunction. Hormones are the, are the signaling molecules that, uh, you know, they, that's literally what they are. They signal from one organ system to another organ system. Those are endocrine hormones. There's also hormones called autocrine and paracrine that signal between closed systems. But uh, there's also a stigma against checking hormones. Just try going to a doctor and saying, I just want my testosterone and estrogen and, and IGF-1 checked, and you're unlikely to get it checked. So I became as good in those things as possible. If you go to the doctor's office and you ask for a comprehensive blood panel, is it going to have hormones on there? A comprehensive blood panel at a doctor's office is probably a CMP. So that's your electrolytes, your liver, your kidney markers, a lipid panel with an LDL, no ApoB, certainly no LP little a. A doctor probably doesn't even know what that is. Probably an A1C if you're lucky. Uh, CBC would be included in most. Fasting insulin would probably not be included. And I would consider that a bare bones blood panel. So it's very unlikely that hormones would be included, even if you're menopausal or having hypogonadal symptoms. Is there a reason they wouldn't be included, considering that a lot of these biomarkers give us a lot of information into what is going right and what's going wrong? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. But at the end of the day, it's cookie cutter medicine. Um, providers, healthcare providers have a very small amount of time to spend with a patient, often just 10 minutes. And ordering more labs requires more interpretation. And if you're just getting your baseline blood work, then they would want a second visit to assess something else. So let's say you're going in for your annual visit. They have 10 minutes. They say, we'll come back. Then we'll talk about your low libido and uh, mood symptoms and um, like what stressors you have and then discuss doing the labs. Then you come back for another visit. Every visit they can bill what's called a, a 99213 or 99214, and that's how they get paid. They don't get paid for answering messages. So they're disincentivized to answer messages when you type in and you ask a nurse something. Um, they're working for free. And that's one of the problems with our health healthcare system is the healthcare provider is disincentivized from answering messages and talking to the patient unless they come in in person and get a visit. And then the patient is disincentivized from coming in in person because they probably haven't met their out-of-pocket max yet, and they're going to be hit with a copay. You know, I was kind of explaining to you before we started recording, I never really got blood work done until 2021. And the reason I got blood work done then is because I was in an Ironman prep, and I was feeling extremely fatigued, beat down, and tired. Mm-hmm. Something, something's got to be wrong. So I got my blood work done, and so I think my testosterone at the time, my total was like 309, which I thought was like, extremely low now considering during this bodybuilding prep but my numbers came in at 109 i'm like oh 309 it's like i'll take that any any time any day but after i started doing some research on you know hormones and and my hormones and how to optimize 
I told my dad who, who turned 60 this year, I was like, Hey dad, you should go get your, your blood work done. Just see where you're at. Just get some like baseline data to see what your biomarkers are sitting at. So he went to his, his primary care physician back home in Pennsylvania and asked to get his testosterone checked. And his doctor was like, why do you want to get that checked? Absolutely not. We're not doing that. So I thought that was very interesting that there was so much pushback because he wanted to see where his baseline data was sitting just for peace of mind. And I thought that was so wrong and out of the norm. Yeah. Um, there's a buzzword called patient-centered medicine. And we should be, uh, as healthcare providers, we should engage in what's called active listening, which is listening for what the patient's goal is. And this is what we're trained to do in medical school and residency. But the system is not designed to allow us to do that. So you have this false dichotomy of conventional medicine, where you basically are just an algorithm robot and you have to go down the check mark because mostly based on what insurance covers, that's what patients are willing to do. I've ordered, um, when I, back when I didn't have my own clinic, when I worked for a more traditional system, I've ordered a basic hormone panel, estrogen, testosterone, DHT, and insurance decided not to cover it. So they, just for those few basic labs, they charge the patient $700 or $800. Wow. The average markup from a wholesale lab cost to what the, to what you will be billed for if insurance doesn't cover it is a thousand percent. So 10 times as much. That panel wholesale would likely cost for just those few hormones, $70, which is a little bit expensive, but some hormones like uh, DHT, and if you get the right assay for estradiol, they could be more expensive. Then when that happens, of course, I try to do my best. So I file an appeal or I file a prior authorization and then after an appeal, you do a peer-to-peer. -peer, so you talk to one of the usually pharmacists or non-practicing medical doctors that hasn't practiced in decades. And there are, of course, exceptions. And then you try to convince them to cover that test for the patient. And it's very time-consuming. Did you take this approach to medicine from something you learned from your dad, mentors, or is this something that you found on your own that you identified as, like, this is going to be something I'm going to really focus on to help people feel better? A combination of both. Part of it is intrinsic. Um, I've always been a, kind of like a, a creative, critical thinker. I was homeschooled. My brothers were as well. My older brother's a dentist. He's one year older and we've gone through most of life together. So I was fortunate enough to, um, I think the saying is like stand on the backs of giants or something like that, is that uh, good people that are also critical thinkers will pull you along in life. And I have certainly been the beneficiary of that. And I continue to be the beneficiary in what I call a, an interdisciplinary team or an academic center without the red tape. So there's a ton of, there's a huge amount of benefit. Anybody who's been to medical school or residency knows that if they have a question and they have a whole host of attendings and dietitians and um, other various healthcare providers and experts that they can ask. Whereas outside of that system, often it's a solo practitioner or they just have, they contract with doctors that don't even talk to each other. So there's no collaborative effort. So a lot of my, um, the way that I practice and how I got here was determined by that. I do want to talk about the six pillars of health that you focus on being diet, exercise, sleep, stress, sunlight spirit but before we do I'm, I'm curious on your opinion you know i've seen over the last couple of years 
there's been a, a huge increased awareness for hormone health, mental health, gut health, kind of like we were talking about previously. Is this new awareness because there is more talk around these topics or are we experiencing lifestyle and environmental factors that are, are causing these issues to be worse to larger populations? I think most of the cause of increased interest is media interest, podcasts like this. However, that being said, they are getting slightly more common. So the there's a program called Healthy People 2030. And every 10 years, uh, I believe it's a collaborative effort, CDC and a couple other organizations. But every 10 years, they reassess general health parameters. For example, what percentage of Americans have prediabetes and what our goal should be. And depending on the trend, their goal might be, um, you know, essentially no change because they know that um, diseases like metabolic syndrome are becoming more and more common. So uh, it's a little bit of both. I think there's also a shift in the culture of what is okay to look at. For example, uh, in the past, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, it became okay to say, you know, I have, I'm struggling with mental health. You talk about depression, you talk about anxiety, that's okay to talk about now. Whereas now there's a similar phenomenon happening with hormone health and also I would say sexual health. You think it's because of like, you know, you hear people talk about all the time, it's because the plastics in our food and in our environment, it's because of the herbicides and pesticides, it's because of the heavy metals. Are these the issues that, that we're experiencing? And in your opinion, what are the environmental factors that are causing the biggest shift in hormone um, fluctuations? All those things are contributing, but they're not the knockout blow. So you think about bisphenol A, you think about, about phthalates, and those are um, xenoestrogens or xenohormones. And you think um, about uh, like what the strongest cause is, it's not that. It's metabolic syndrome and sleep disorders like sleep apnea, prediabetes and insulin resistance. So those are the largest contributors, but all of these other things are also contributing. I'd love to talk about the six pillars of health mm -hmm. and kind of before we dive into like each one of those pillars, how did you get to the point of establishing the six pillars of health? And like, where were you at in your career, your medical professional career before establishing those? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, why introducing those to your practice? Yeah. So the first two are diet and exercise, and those are pretty self-explanatory. But I do like to say the optimal diet and exercise regimen is one that the individual will adhere to. So it's not a cookie cutter program that everybody does the exact same thing. And I got involved in diet and exercise even um, before med school. Um, there's actually a huge emphasis for what's called lifestyle medicine. There's lifestyle medicine certifications. And there's a group called food as medicine. And there's another group called exercise as medicine. And I was involved in both through medical school and they were extremely popular groups. So I know that at least in the Midwest, there is a huge number of medical doctors that truly believe exercise is medicine and food is medicine. And they want to be able to prescribe those things. And they have prescription pads where they can, but sometimes time is a rate limiting factor. And also a lot of patients don't want to hear that from their healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. They don't think that they're interested, but I know that there's a lot of uh, my other colleagues that are. Past that, um, I developed the pillars of health because a lot of times you'd write behavioral interventions that are not diet or exercise related. 
And then I uh, used alliteration. So they all had an S. So those are sleep, which is arguably the third most important one. Sunlight, that just incorporates being outdoors. It's not natural for humans to be indoors in climate-controlled environments all the time. So that also is heat exposure, cold exposure, et cetera. Um, sunlight is the next one. And that's just, that's not necessarily like going out and getting a tan. Um, although there is some truth to feel good, look good. That also includes uh, circadian rhythms. Um, and then past that is uh, stress and spiritual health. So just like anything else, you want to feel good if you're lifting a weight in the gym. You want that effort to feel good with stress. Stress is a normal part of life, but you don't want it to be so much that you can't handle it. But you should teach yourself to be able to handle higher levels of stress, just like you progressively overload lifting a weight in the gym. And then after that is spiritual health. That was initially my last one. That's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once you address your physical needs, that self-actualization at the top of the pyramid is particularly important. And then uh, Rich Roll convinced me I should add a social health as my final seventh pillar of health. Um, I think the last two to three years have been a good example of why social health is particularly important. I agree with that. Um, my wife and I were talking as we were walking our daughter last night in preparation for this podcast about that social part of of your life and, and how much of a health requirement it is. You know, we found parts of our life where we're so focused on work and our family and, and caring for our daughter. And the first thing we typically eliminate is our social lifestyle. And we immediately feel that, you know, we stop going out to dinner with friends or meeting with groups of people, or, you know, we just kind of stay in our bubble to get things done that we have to get done. But like there's a, a immediate you know, effect to neglecting social health in, in, in your lifestyle. Yeah, it's interesting. Now that I have two young kids, um, whenever you go do something social, there is that fixed cost that you have to incur. And it can certainly bring up upon ourselves a lot of stress. And, um, you know, you're trying to figure out where do you drop them off or are you, gonna get, yeah, are you going to get them ready? Are they going to get sick at the last minute? Then you have to cancel on everybody. But then when you actually do get to the social interaction point, it feels extremely good and you're extremely happy that it happened. Yeah. Like me and my wife went on our first vacation with our daughter uh, a few weeks ago, we went to Florida and getting to Florida for a vacation with a nine month old at the time with all the things that she needed. I told my wife by the time we got to Florida, I was like, that felt like a marathon. Yeah. You know, the day started at 7am didn't end till like 10 30 PM. And like that day was tough and rough, but the remainder of that vacation, hanging out with people and friends and going to the beach and going to dinners, all worth it. Mm -hmm. Absolute blast. But there's this, this big effort you have to put in that front end and the back end, you know, it's coming, but it is worth it for the social experience you get out of it. I have a lot of empathy for that. The other thing that uh, sometimes sometimes it'll come to mind is your young kids are also experiencing that with you. So how you adapt and respond to the stress of getting ready for that or how you adapt and respond to uh, travel, they will pick up those things as they age as well. Yeah, I think we, we learn a lot of this from our parents too because... I remember, you know, traveling with my family growing up. My dad is a stressful traveler. 
So like we get to the airport. He'd always have us there like three hours before the flight was taken off. He was always rushing to the gate. My mom was always chill, hanging out back. And I find myself stressing now that I'm traveling with my family mm-hmm. at the airport. And I'm very conscious of this because I know my daughter, as she grows up, she's going to see this and, and watch this. Um, but I don't want to be known, you know, within my family as the stressful dad, the stressful traveler, the stressful worker. I want my family, my kids to view me as like, oh, dad, he's, he's chill. He's relaxed. Like, you know, I tell this story a lot, but when I first joined the military, um, this is a side note, but it has context in what, to what we're talking about. When I first joined the military, I was asking this, uh, this captain from the 75th Ranger Regiment, you know, I'm about to get my first platoon. I'm about to be a leader in the military. What's one piece of advice you can give me? And he pointed across the room to this other 75th Ranger officer. He said, you see that guy over there? When shit hits the fan, when things go absolutely nuts, that guy is as cool as the other side of the pillow. You'll never know he's stressed or that there's chaos striking. He is just calm and chill. I was like, man, I want to be that guy. Like when shit hits the fan, I want to be as cool as the other side of the pillow. Now that I'm a dad, especially leading a family, that's how I want to be perceived by the people in my life. Certainly so. It's like uh, you're endogenously producing Xanax in your veins. Yeah. Your GABAergic system is just hypersensitive and you're able to consciously control the fight or flight aspect of your nervous system even when most people couldn't. And I think a lot of that is learned and that's part of the reason why stress is a pillar of health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, adaptation of. Yeah. So diving into the six pillars of health, you know, the first two being diet and exercise. Um, my question is, do you think that most or all health concerns and issues can be addressed and solved or cured with diet and exercise? It's hard to think of a con- I'm I'm sure you can think of examples, but almost all health conditions are solved with diet and exercise. That being said, the way that, so uh, there's obviously a balance to the situation. I'm not anti-medication. I'm certainly not anti-supplement. Um, and at the end of the day, medications and supplements are very similar. They both have pharmacodynamic effects, drugs effect on the body, and pharmacokinetic effects, how the body metabolizes and uses it. But the, the approach to every condition should be what lifestyle recommendations, including diet and exercise, can be done to improve this condition. An analogy I sometimes make is if you're walking in the forest and you happen upon some quicksand, that's your pathology. So you should teach yourself how to climb and um, or swim, how to get out of the quicksand. You need to move to do that. But don't be afraid of using a tool to do so hopefully a temporary tool, like a shovel, and that tool is the medication or the supplement. So it's something to help the lifestyle intervention work better. So it's something not to rely on forever and become a crutch, but use temporarily and then use food, diet, nutrition, exercise to be that forever solve. Mm -hmm. Correct. And in some cases, tools are particularly powerful. So it's not just shovels. They might have a a backhoe or a crane and the crane might pull you out of the quicksand and then put you back down. But if you don't learn the lifestyle intervention, uh, GLP-1s like semaglutide would be an example of a crane. 
But if you don't learn the lifestyle interventions to walk out of the quicksand pit at the same time, then as soon as they set you back down on the quicksand, you're going to sink right back in. At what point do you start introducing some of these tools, this medicine, and you find that patients view this as, oh, I don't have to now keep the, the diet and lifestyle and exercise interventions going because I have this tool and I can rely on that. Very often. And this is where physician-patient rapport is particularly important. So it's often not as simple as just getting the medication from someone at a med spa or whatever other clinic, and then you see them once a year, and then you're magically improved. So there's certainly no um, magic medication or supplement. But that's where shared decision-making comes in. That's where you and the patient both understand the limitations and the benefits of the medication or supplement and how it should be used best. That's where active listening comes in, um, where I am paying attention enough and I'm actually talking to the patient enough to understand where they're at and what their understanding is. To really like focus on diet, do you think there is an optimized diet approach? Because, you know, when I first got in the fitness industry, 2009, you know, I went to school for nutrition. I went to school for nutrition thinking that we were going to be learning how to build our bodies and, and get stronger and get bigger and put on muscle. I was quickly disappointed to realize that nutrition in a university was focused primarily on the dietetics route of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So a lot of the nutrition protocols and practices that we were learning about were for, you know, intervention between those diseases. So then I kind of took a different path. Um, do you think there is an optimized diet approach that is cookie cutter that can be applied to everyone because we're so bombarded with vegans better, plant-based is better, carnivores better, uh, paleo is better, like all these different things that we're being told, a lot of people don't know where to start. What is an optimal diet? The optimal diet that's non-cookie cutter is the diet that everybody will adhere to, which is of course, different for every individual. But you can loop, you can somewhat lump groups of people in. There's trends that you can see. For example, for the average individual with metabolic syndrome, for example, high fasting insulin, an A1C of 5.6 or above, their body fat percentage is, let's say, over 20%, your average American, really. A diet that is high in foods of low caloric density, but high nutrient density is the optimal diet. Whereas for an individual perhaps like yourself or an endurance athlete, um, someone who is trying to leverage performance outcomes, then uh, one common piece of advice that I give them is don't be scared of carbs, including timing them around your workout. So there's definitely trends that you can see from time to time. Um, uh, another common trend is if you're not going to supplement with omega-3s, especially if you live near the center of the country, think about quality omega-3 sources in your food. What about diet intervention or different types of foods to optimize gut health and hormone health? You know, from, from my understanding, a diet higher in dietary fat um, with some cholesterol is great for hormone optimization. But like, where is too much and too little? Like, should we focus on fat? Should we not focus on fat? Should we use blood work and biomarkers to guide our diet in terms of 
do we need to limit cholesterol? Do we need to limit sodium? Stuff like that. Yeah, so the leaner you are and the more of a caloric deficit you're in, the more important it is to include higher amounts of fat that maintains higher levels of total testosterone while you're dieting. Um, that being said, an individualized diet program is always going to be better. And when you're looking at, so if you're worried about cholesterol, what you're probably really worried about is uh, cardiovascular disease or atherosclerotic plaque. That's where plaque builds up in the small arteries around the, around the heart or the brain or even uh, the genitals. It can build up there too or the legs. And for that, you want to look at ApoB, which is um, even more closely correlated with plaque buildup than uh, LDL or bad cholesterol. So if you look at ApoB, the way I think about it is ApoB years. Um, kind of like the concept of pack years for smoking. If people aren't familiar with pack years for smoking, that's basically your number of packs per day times the number of years you smoked. For example, uh, five packs a day for one year would be five pack years. One pack a day for five years would also be five pack years. And ApoB seems to have that same cumulative effect to where you can let it run extremely high for a mini number of years and not have significant plaque buildup. Conversely, um, you can also have it uh, relatively low for a lot of number of years. And if you live longer, eventually it's likely to affect you. So if you look at the coronaries, which is the arteries around the heart of a 100-year-old, then if it's been high even transiently from time to time, they're likely to have some degree of plaque. Some people say, well, it's not just cholesterol, it's also inflammation and insulin resistance, and that's certainly true. So the way I think of those two things is inflammation and insulin resistance is like the glue that builds the plaque wall, but the ApoB and also LP little a, those are the blocks. So you have to have both glue and blocks present. Do you think diet is, is so uniquely specific to the individual? And here's my example of that. You'll hear people say that they went on a plant-based diet and inflammation went down. Then you'll hear the person right next to them say they went on a carnivore meat-only diet and their inflammation went down. Mm -hmm. So you'll hear this contradicting information on both extremes. What is, what is right? What is wrong? Is it that unique to the individual? It is that unique. Um, there's even a, a SNP, which is a single nucleotide polymorphism, you can test your genetics, and if you have that allele, which is not particularly common, if you consume high amounts of seed oils, your CRP increases by about half a point. For example, from one to one and a half. And you, ideally, CRP is over, under 0.5 a lot of the time. For people who exercise a lot, then perhaps under one is a more reasonable goal. But um, even a single gene like that can make a difference. It's also well known that uh, there's a gene, I know it's very prevalent in Iceland, to where you can hyper-consume carbohydrates and it has little to no effect on developing insulin resistance. So it's very individualized. We talked about kind of, you know, comprehensive blood work and getting that done and including hormone blood panels in there as well, biomarkers. From your perspective, what's like the... If I'm going for the grand slam of, I want to know genomics, I want to know blood panels, like what's the grand slam of getting baseline biomarkers done that gives me everything and anything? The grand slam would be the best way to do it. So there would be two stages. You get your serum biomarkers done first, 
instead of everything at the same time. And I know a lot of uh, clinics and whatnot have cookie cutter. You know, you get your gut microbiome mapped no matter what. You get your salivary hormones no matter what. You get your genomic SNPs, which is um, SNPs aren't the only type of mutation. SNPs is basically, uh, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's like one letter of one word, of one sentence, of one paragraph, of one chapter, of one book, of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So one gene might be like one sentence, and the gene can have other mutations besides that one word that's changed. It can have a, a word deleted. It can have a word repeated. It can also have a shift in the words. So um, even if you have or don't have the SNP, it might not be clinically significant. So I find the best way to do um, precision medicine or, um, you know, like full uh, grand slam uh, diagnostic workup is to start with serum testing and see where it guides you and then order the pertinent test for individuals that need it and don't order tests that are unlikely to be pertinent. Is that the approach you guys take in your practice? Yes. Um, that being said, and I, I've gotten this question enough to where I posted lab panels. If people want to go to our website, they can look at these lab panels. But if people just want the highest yield tests in general, they can get what I'd call a complete panel. So a complete panel has, for the average individual, the highest yield and also most accurate tests for hormones, inflammatory markers, um, vitamins, electrolytes, lipids, etc. I do want to talk about gut health a little bit. And, and before we start recording, we were talking about this a little bit. The gut has always been very interesting to me because of how complex it is and how much we actually don't know. And I could be wrong. I kind of want to take this approach to it first. Is it that we don't know much about the gut because of how large the gut is and from both ends, we can only access so much. So there's, there's so much of the gut that we actually can't access on a living person. And that is just a mystery to us. Is that part of the reason it is so complex and, and confusing? That's certainly part of it. Um, another reason why it's difficult is there's many things that are outside the gut. So even if you could have like a permanent endoscopy, so you have tubes looking and cameras from both ends or capsulography, if that gets better. Um, but your, uh, even if you had a real time picture of what's in the gut, there is a lot of changes outside the gut that are influenced by it. For example, postbiotics, nerves that go back and forth between the, the gut and the brain, hormones that are produced in the gut itself. And then also the immune system, their main essentially military bases are in the gut, <clears throat> whether that's Peyer's patches or uh, for example, even the appendix or the tonsils are basically military bases for your immune system. So you can't get a good idea of what's happening there. The way I think of the gut in general is it's the training ground for your immune system. So for someone who comes to you and is having gut issues or, or so they think they're gut issues, what's your approach? What's the first step? Because I personally, I've done a lot of uh, Googling and self-help and self-diagnosis. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, for example, after my bodybuilding show, I was having a lot of stomach distress, gut discomfort, bloated, gassy. So I did some self-research. I was like, I'm going to try this very specific 
bacteria strain. As I was telling you, I, I colonized it. I, I fermented it. I turned it into 90 billion CFUs. And it didn't have the effect that I was hoping and wanting for. So I have found that I've tried to self-diagnose lots of, lots of things in my life, um, but the gut specifically. And I'm always, always missing. So like, what is step one of, you know, figuring out what's going on and how to fix it? With any pathology, a provider, whether it's a MD or an RD, a dietitian, or uh, regardless of the provider, even a health coach, generally should start with uh, the history first, so the subjective, and then include that with the objective. So the clue that you were preparing and then finishing a bodybuilding show is a huge clue, and that can tell you a lot about what it's less likely and more likely to be. Um, for example, your stool frequency was probably somewhat slowed at some point during prep, yeah. just because of decreased caloric intake. And then presumably um, you had uh, like very low volume. So you probably didn't consume a whole lot of fiber right before your show because you don't want that to sit in your gut while you're on stage. And then the rebound from that, think of it as like uh, after winter, you have a bacterial bloom, an overgrowth of methane producing bacteria and hydrogen producing bacteria. And um, it's going to be a, a bit of a wave uh, peak in a trough until hopefully it evens out in the long run, long run of things. But uh, other clues can tell us, um, you know, what what foods trigger it, what is your diet, getting a diet recall, even if it's just a 24-hour diet recall. Often starting with uh, a care with a dietitian that's uh, accustomed to treating similar cases, for example, a sports dietitian, I think it's called CPSDA, um, that's basically the sports dietitians that take care of individuals in very uh, similar circumstances. The one that works at our clinic, her name's Diana, and she is excellent. And often, uh, even without doing, you know, a lot of functional medicine clinics, I don't consider myself a functional medicine provider other than that I like to treat the root cause of each pathology. But it's not necessarily like what someone shouldn't do in that situation is just go to the internet and then buy a GI map that can help for some individuals. But that's just basically testing um, what dead or excreted bacteria are coming out the other end. It's like testing the exhaust out of your car. It'll tell you some. It's not completely worthless. But um, getting that subjective information about um, what's going in and what circumstances you have is very helpful. Would you argue that most gut issues or an imbalance of bacteria? Not just an imbalance in bacteria. Most gut issues also have to do with motility, either disorganized motility. So the process of peristalsis is where you squeeze the gut. And as you squeeze the gut, you can do it in an organized manner that's going to push things along or disorganize. So things like cholinergic tone can uh, affect this quite a bit. In fact, um, you know, the diagnosis of IBS, perhaps we can talk about that too, is extremely common, yeah. but it should be what's called a diagnosis of exclusion. That means all other causes should be ruled out, but because it's the gut, it's pretty much impossible to rule out all other causes unless you have um, a very vigorous workup, including endoscopy. So um, that being said, a lot of people are still, still diagnosed with IBS, um, partly just to cover medications, but um, organizing that um, one very common treatment is bintel, which basically just paralyzes the gut because it's a um, an anticholinergic. So the acetylcholine is no longer working. 
So you don't feel the symptom, but the cause is still there. Um, and that's one way that it's unrelated to bacteria. The other way that it's not as directly related to bacteria is immunological conditions like Crohn's. So if motility is the issue for a lot of people, how do you increase the motility? And does bacteria, you know, say taking a probiotic, for example, does that help improve motility to empty bowels more efficiently? It can. There's a lot of inputs. So we mentioned acetylcholine as one. Um, opioid receptor agonist and antagonist are another one. So people are familiar with Imodium or Loperamide. That is a mu opioid receptor uh, antagonist in the gut. So it blocks that receptor. So, um, or sorry, Loperamide is a, an agonist at that receptor. So it can help condition, like some cases of diarrhea can be particularly helpful. Gluten and casein also activate that same receptor. So that's why a lot of people are empirically put on a low dairy, which is low casein and low gluten diet. And that might restore some of the motility of the gut. But that's also probably not addressing the root cause. That's just helping the motility. That's why some people take things like senna. Senicides is an herb that helps with contraction of the gut. And that's also why a lot of people who um, stop using nicotine, whether it's a vape or a gum or whatnot, nicotine is, um, there's a receptor called the nicotinic receptor. Acetylcholine also binds that. It also helps with motility of the gut. And then we could also mention things like caffeine and adenosine. Um, that's why one of the classic like home fixes or home remedies is smoke a cigarette and drink a cup of black coffee mm -hmm. and that can restore motility. All those things input. So think of it as, um, you know, a tug of war where you have multiple ropes attached rather than one thing that causes it. I think I've seen online before recommendations. Can you um, make senna into a tea? Senna bedtime tea is a very common thing to take. Does that, does that help? It helps, but it doesn't necessarily address the root cause. A lot of people that have um, inflammatory bowel, even if it's not overt inflammatory bowel disease, also have good luck with something called LDN. LDN is actually also an, an obesity medicine when combined with bupropion, but LDN is low dose naltrexone. And that also kind of has the opposite effect of uh, loperamide. So it helps the gut organize its peristalsis again, but without being a laxative. I would love to learn more about probiotics. And, you know, I feel like everyone's being thrown a probiotic. And from my understanding, and kind of like you were briefly mentioning to me too, a lot of the probiotics on the market and by the time you actually consume them or get them in your hands, I mean, they're supposed to be living organisms and they're typically dead. So what's your opinion on the probiotic market? Do they work? Can they help? If so, are there certain strains you should be looking for instead of just like, because I think a lot of people think probiotic, it's just like generic. I'm taking a probiotic, but there's actually strains, specific strains in those products that we're taking. Yeah, your general probiotic that you get over the counter probably doesn't have any live probiotic in it. And if it does, it's unlikely that live probiotic will get to your gut. I believe over 90% of probiotics that you just go to Target and get over the counter is not going to actually seed your gut with probiotic. And even if it does, it is very, unless you have a lifestyle change, for example, you, you're consuming different prebiotics or different foods or even start exercising, it's less likely that you will be permanently colonized with that bacterial strain. There are exceptions to that, and there are ways to get around that. 
But um, there's a couple ways that you can take probiotics that are slightly better. The best way is in foods. So things like kombucha, things like kefir. Um, kefir is a type of like essentially very fermented yogurt kind of combined with milk. Um, that's a good one. Natto, I believe, is a good one. Kimchi is a great natural probiotic. And then incorporating good prebiotic foods into your diet. Um, examples of that would be a lot of root vegetables, garlic, leek, onions, chicory root. Um, those are good sources. In general, I'm, I don't recommend taking really high doses of one specific prebiotic fiber, like really high doses of psyllium. Psyllium can help with the growth of a strain called acromantia, which can be a good strain for some people to take. But taking very high doses can cause overgrowth of that and uh, paradoxical gut symptoms. And also a lot of psyllium has artificial sugars and dyes and flavorings in it, which is not always bad. But in very high quantities routinely, that's not something that's ideal um, addressing the root cause. So that's kind of the first best way is incorporating things in the diet. The second thing that you can do is look for spore-based probiotics. Those are more likely to, to survive the transit to the gut or things that are symbiotics, especially if they're encapsulated with a specific delivery mechanism, of which there is uh, many good go-tos, but not many of them you can find at Target. Going back to psyllium, psyllium husk, mm -hmm. how much is too much? And are you recommending that that's a product or a powder you shouldn't take on a daily basis? Taking a small amount is certainly okay on a daily basis, but in general, you can get most of the benefit from probably one gram of psyllium. Where, uh, and by the way, the powder, when they actually like powder it up, is generally better tolerated. But you can combine it with other varieties of bacteria. When you look at psyllium, you can see it grows very specific varieties of microbiota. Acromantia is just one of them. So think of that as fish food for a certain amount of fish. Your gut is like your combined aquarium terrarium. Prebiotics are like the fish food you put in. And if you have a broad spectrum of fish that you're trying to um, facilitate growth within your aquarium, you want to feed all of them their same fish food and not in too high of quantities. Otherwise, you'll have rotten fish food. You'll have other fish that are scavenging that fish food that you don't want to happen. A ribbon of glycan may have mispronounced that. That's another good broad spectrum prebiotic fiber. L-methylcellulose is another one. And there's a lot of different brands. Uh, one of them is called paleo fiber, but there's many different brands that have this broad spectrum prebiotic that you can take in order to facilitate growth with a wide variety of fishes that's going to be superior than just mega dosing psyllium. There's a cereal that I consume every once in a while. I'm feeling a little slow and backed up. I'm trying to increase motility. Uh, and it's like a brand cereal and it's got a lot of psyllium in it. I think like in one serving, it's like a 40 gram serving. There's 17 grams of fiber. And uh, I make sure I weigh that out too, because I'm, like, I'm not, I'm not taking a chance of getting like 30 grams of fiber, but as soon as I consume that cereal, I can feel like, I mean, you can hear your gut making noises and you mentioned fish food. It, it actually looks like the pellets in fish food, but I'll like, there was a time where I was consuming that every single day and you know, it started off great. I was feeling better and then it made things worse. So it now it induces SIBO. Yeah. I was getting super bloated, super gassy. So now that's one of those cereals that like I'll have every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's even half a serving. But like I found that I was consuming it every day. It just made matters worse. Yeah. Um, a lot of times more of one thing is not better. The dose makes the poison, whether it's 
your food or your medication or your supplement, even things like water, if you consume enough, then it begins to have negative effects. Do you think one of the best things we can do in terms of diet is diversity of? So like, I think a, a lot of us, including myself, creatures of habit, my first three to four meals a day are, are pretty typically the same thing. And then dinner is what's different. Mm -hmm. Do you actively try and recommend people switch up their, their meals every single day to get more diversity? Some of their meals, certainly yes, but it's not essential to switch up your meals just for the sake of switching them up. It depends on how high quality of a meal it is. So let's say um, every day for lunch or breakfast or whatnot, you have, you put some salmon in an air fryer and you eat that along with um, a rotating vegetable source and a rotating carbohydrate source. That's pretty reasonable. Or if it's breakfast, even without a carbohydrate, mm -hmm. if you're not going to um, leverage training immediately and not need that carbohydrate benefit. But in general, uh, and again, I've already shouted out my friend uh, Diana with Nguyen with Nutrition. She says that one of her main goals as a dietitian is to allow people to be the least restrictive possible, which is contrary to a lot of nutritionists and dietitians where you're just eating the exact same thing all the time, where you're able to eat very small amounts of something that you like and not over consume that thing. So it's not, it's not as sexy as, you know, saying always avoid this or eat this at very high quantities all the time, but it's best for the patient. Right. Well, I'd love to kind of shift over into some more exercise uh, specific information right now. And I'd love to hear your opinion on how much is too much training in terms of strength and endurance. And we'll start there. Like an optimized training program, a split between cardiovascular training and resistance training. What is your approach? What is your recommendation? This can vary to some degree because there is a lot of crossover between uh, aerobic training and resistance training. If you're doing things like high intensity interval training or CrossFit type training, then you're not going to be able to do that. And then also do a whole bunch of zone two and zone three cardio for, you know, 300. And this is for the average person. There's obviously exceptions for 300 minutes a week. And then also do heavy resistance training five days a week. Mm -hmm. So you have to pick that balance depending on what the individual likes, kind of similar to diet. Let's say they really like resistance training, then doing resistance training five or even six days a week, and then um, partitioning their cardio into mostly low zone two or even high zone one for two or three days a week, 30 to 60 minutes per time. That would be very reasonable. If an individual really likes cardio, or let's say they like running, then hopefully they can do some cross training like rowing or swimming or biking. But let's say they do that five or six times a week and then do resistance training just two to three times a week. What is the impact? I've always been curious to this. What is the impact on endurance training on hormones? Because from my personal experience, I don't know if it's because of the direct relation between endurance training and, and crashing my hormones, or if it's that I'm overtraining or there's too much volume and it's affecting my hormones. But I always find when I go into a big endurance training block, it has an effect on my testosterone. And I'm curious, is, is that something 
I'm doing wrong or is that just the name of the game? Yeah, it's not something that you're doing wrong. It is the name of the game. I agree with Ryan Hall here. I know he, and he was a marathoner for people that don't know. Actually, they probably do know if they're listening to your podcast. I had him on, on the podcast yeah, before. So they're, they're probably very familiar. And I agree with him. Um, if you're an elite marathoner, then there is no way that you're going to like get around that affecting your hormones. Hopefully you're just uh, genetically elite with being resilient and just pumping out testosterone and growth hormone, regardless of the overtraining and regardless of the high mileage. Um, however, that being said, uh, for the average runner, it's probably not affecting things. So um, I actually ran track for a while. I did mostly 800 and 400. And if your mileage is not extremely high week per week, then it's much less likely to affect your optimal hormone profiles. Perhaps you take a bit of a hit, especially when you're in a phase of the season where you're training very um, regularly. And then when you deload, you recover some of that. Is there any way around that? And I'm sure it's dose dependent, whereas, you know, mileage gets higher, yes, it's going to have effects. Like one of the ways around it is don't get mileage above a certain point. But is there something that you can do in terms of diet? Can you incorporate more dietary fat to avoid some of that? Can you sleep more to avoid some of that? Is there anything you can do? Because clear example, I'm about to go into another ultra prep in the next couple of weeks. I'm doing a last man standing ultra in September. And I'm hoping that I can just like maintain hormone health to that prep. And a reason I'm not taking my miles to the absolute extremes during this prep is because I don't want to feel like garbage during it. Is there anything that I can do or people can do to avoid some of these issues? There's a lot that you can do. As you mentioned, more sleep helps. I think there's some evidence, mostly anecdotal, that taking a lot of naps will help, especially earlier on in the day if you're an elite athlete and you're running a lot. Um, also, as you mentioned, to some degree, consuming more fat and micronutrients will help. That's one of the benefits of being a runner is you can likely consume a lot of calories and not gain too much body fat because you're also burning a lot of calories. So eating very nutrient-dense foods, um, limiting things like alcohol, there's an interesting correlation between elite runners and elite swimmers. They consume, I think it was three or four times as much alcohol as the average individual. Oh, wow. And part of that's just because alcohol is seven calories per gram, whereas fat's nine and protein and carbs are four. So alcohol is a great source of caloric density. So your body very well may crave alcohol along with fat as um, replenishing the calories that you've burnt and trying to prevent you from going into a caloric deficit. That being said, the alcohol is going to upregulate aromatase and increase estrogen and decrease testosterone. Um, and also it's not a very, you know, it's not going to have vitamins in it. So it's not a nutrient dense source of calories. And then on top of that, of course, um, you know, you finish a race and I would do the same thing. You want to drink beer or drink something because you have that immediate euphoric effect mm -hmm. and it works better too for its, um, I guess, socially therapeutic benefit. Right. What's happening in the body that is causing a decrease in, in males, for example, decreased testosterone with increased endurance training? Is it that your body is trying to become more efficient and lose mass and size so it, you know, it's regulating hormones to facilitate that? Part of it is hypothalamic and pituitary dysfunction. So it's likely, and I don't remember what your LH and FSH were, but they're, they're always low. So 
low LH and low FSH can be secondary to uh, what's called feedback inhibition at the pituitary. And it can also be due to um, the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus has several inputs to make GnRH, which is gonadotropin-releasing hormone. GnRH is just the hormone that comes from the hypothalamus up in the brain, down a little bit further down in the brainstem to the pituitary. Um, I think Descartes was a philosopher that thought the soul was in the pituitary. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out to be a true hypothesis. But um, LH and FSH are released from the pituitary, and they go to the gonads, ovaries and testes, respectively. And that's what causes the release of testosterone and the release of several other um, hormones as well. However, even the LH and FSH that is released, a lot of individuals that run or train a lot, they also have oxidative stress that's increased, and they also have heat damage. And the testes do not work as well. Leydig cells are the cells that um, LH primarily binds to and causes testosterone synthesis and release. So even you, you're not even getting good bang for your buck for the low amount of LH and FSH you do have. So it's a bit of a combination of what we call primary dysfunction and secondary dysfunction. Is it directly the pituitary that affects LH and FSH? Hypothalamus, pituitary, and testes. Interestingly, um, there are cells in your limbic system, which is the emotional system of your brain, for example, the amygdala, the, the uh, hippocampus, and um, those release a peptide called kispeptin, and downstream to that, that binds in the hypothalamus. So that's one way that the actual uh, physical and mental stress likely affects um, downstream, causing lower LH and FSH as well. Mm. Another thing to take into account is prolactin. So higher states of estrogen can increase prolactin, but there's a lot of pheromonal or psychosocial interact interactions on prolactin as well. There's a gene called the PRL gene, and its activity is increased in states of higher estrogen. But uh, for example, if you have a spouse that has a newborn baby and uh, they're lactating and you're around them, then your prolactin will also increase. Whereas if you were not around them, your prolactin will not be as high. I've so, heard about that. I thought that was a myth. That's that's accurate. It is. So that's where the uh, difference between causation and correlation comes apart. Okay. So it's like, well, is that causatory? We don't know exactly how it would be other than uh, perhaps changes in oxytocin. But um, we know that pheromonally, you're going to have a lot of changes in your limbic system. So I think one of the changes that you get is an effect on prolactin, not just an effect on kispeptin in your limbic system. Okay. Yeah, but it's it's correlation. It's not causation at this point. But the effect is persistent enough to where, you know, that is something that you should take into account. Uh, any male or female, for that matter, that is feeling differently in the postpartum state, it is very reasonable to check hormones. I remember when I was in college, there were these guys talking about um, buying and selling pheromones. And they were talking about like spraying pheromones on them before going to the bar. And it was supposed to attract women based off of these certain scents. Is, Sex Panther clone. <laughs> is, is that, is there any validity behind that? Um, perhaps oxytocin. Um, if you consider that not really a, a pheromone. Um, that I know of, there's not validity of like using pheromone clones to attract women. Yeah. But um, if you are attracted to somebody, then oxytocin will definitely help spark things. So interestingly, and 
uh, this is somewhat different for men and women, and it's not fully elucidated and understood well. But oxytocin is thought of as the monogamy hormone for females, whereas vasopressin is thought of the monogamy hormone or neurotransmitter um, in males. Whereas vasopressin is also uh, thought of like antidiuretic hormone. So um, there is some differences in hormone signaling to uh, like induce monogamy and the hormones to induce libido. Well, the next pillars I'd love to dive into are sleep and sunlight and the relation between the two. Do you find that most people aren't sleeping enough? And to give some context, like I sleep about six and a half hours a night. I would like to get to, to eight. Um, but based off the time my daughter's waking up right now, not going back to sleep, that's just not happening. Yeah. And then kind of a, a question based off of that as well. How does sunlight and regulating circadian rhythm affect our sleep cycles and sleep performance? Yeah, so circadian rhythm, that's just the natural rhythm in, um, well, one, the pineal gland, which is a small gland in the middle of the brain. The Egyptians called it the third eye. But the pineal gland is inactivated by light going down the optic nerve. And um, different wavelengths of light are going to inactivate it more. For example, a blue wavelength of light that's going to be very inhibitory. Um, and I don't advocate for wearing blue blocking glasses except maybe the last hour of the day, although I'm not entirely sure about that either, but that could be reasonable if you're going to wear them last hour. Whereas a red wavelength of light, 670 nanometers, I believe, has other benefits for the mitochondria of the retina. Um, but uh, that's the pineal gland, and that regulates melatonin uh, release. So melatonin is actually related to serotonin, and serotonin is also loosely correlated with estrogenic activity. So if you have particularly low estrogen, um, like a lot of runners do, and like a lot of bo natural bodybuilders do, then that can interfere with serotonergic signaling. Um, the melatonin is usually high in the evening, well, hopefully high in the evening and low in the morning. Really high doses of vitamin D might affect melatonin signaling. So it might be reasonable to take your vitamin D in the morning if you think that's affecting your melatonin signaling. Melatonin also decreases during andropause and menopause, like other hormones, especially if you have a, a calcified pineal gland. And I don't think there's much validity to pineal decalcification. Um, as far as improving your circadian rhythm. Cortisol is another main hormone with the circadian rhythm. Testosterone actually kind of has a circadian rhythm as well, more similar to cortisol to where it's high uh, very early on in the morning, late in the evening, late during the sleep process, and then it decreases throughout the day and is lowest in the evening. So more cortisol is not always bad. If you have deficient cortisol, that's Addison's disease, like what John F. Kennedy had, where um, it's... Cortisol essentially kind of helps you get that swift kick in the butt, that impetus to get out of bed. Is there a certain time of the day that's most beneficial to get sunlight? I know a lot of people, like Huberman talks about, as soon as you wake up, go get some sunlight. Does it matter if you get it in the morning or throughout the day or, or just getting it at some point? The first half of the day is the most important. The more your sleep is dysregulated, the more important it is to get it earlier in the day. For example during a time zone shift or if you have jet lag, that's particularly important. And if you are going to shift a whole bunch of time zones, that's when it's most reasonable to take a little bit of melatonin, uh, depending on how fast you metabolize it, one to five milligrams. 
or even a melatonin receptor agonist like Rosarim, which is a generic melatonin receptor at its first and second receptors. Its third receptor does have a lot of, a, a little bit of hormonal interplay. So perhaps in, in pediatric populations, watch the dose if you're taking it all the time, but it's not a significant um, interplay to be very concerned with. Um, sunlight later in the day can help. There is validity to low solar angles, like Huberman likes to say. But if you don't have a sleep disorder, you don't have to incorporate low solar angle sunlight into your routine every single morning. What's your opinion on red light therapy? Uh, like those infrared juve lights, for example. Yeah. Are those beneficial and do they help regulate circadian rhythm? They can. Um, it's not a necessity. It's nice that it does not have full spectrum bright blue light that's getting into your eyes in the evening. So that's definitely one, um, like if that's, that's like the opportunity cost. If you're getting red light, then hopefully you're not getting really bright light right before you go to sleep. Um, I mentioned the 670 nanometer light that can be beneficial for the mitochondria and the retina and theoretically in other areas of the body as well. I'm skeptical about its use specifically for basically transluminating the scrotum. So I'm skeptical for its benefit for testicular health. With a lot of the patients that you're working with, how do you approach you know, these pillars of, of health being sunlight and sleep. What are your recommendations? What are your typical protocols? How do you incorporate these into a patient's, you know, lifestyle? For the average individual, about seven to eight hours of sleep per night. If they feel that they may have a sleep pathology, I have a very low threshold for ordering a sleep study. There are certainly sleep disorders other than obstructive sleep apnea. And even if you do have some sleep apnea, there's a lot of things that you can do other than wear a CPAP mask that's suffocating you. So, um, and then as far as the sunlight, getting outdoors and getting uh, light, hopefully the first half of the day. The Pareto principle is certainly true. So law of diminishing returns, the first 20% of light and outdoor time you have, the better. One thing that I noticed a huge, it made a huge difference in residency, whether I was doing a night shift or a day shift or whatnot, is I lived close enough to the hospital I would longboard to the hospital and it's not just the sunlight that I noticed. Sometimes it was dark too when I, when I rode in, but um, you also have air in your face and uh, you feel the cold air. Um, I don't know if there's like a huge benefit to grounding. Some people certainly do great. Uh, and that's like when they go outside barefoot and do prayer meditation. Um, and for some people that can work well as part of their, uh, sunlight and outdoor therapy. One other thing that can be beneficial is uh, seeing things that are green. So outside of sunlight, if you have more trees and more green plants, uh, even if it's not right around where you work, but outside a window where you're working at, you're more productive and in general happier. And then in addition, um, having your hands in the ground. So I think we both share a desire to have a big garden. And I like working in the garden with my family but that does have health benefits as well, even if you just do it once or twice a week. There's a, a massive difference between mornings where I wake up and I go run outside and when I don't. And 90% of the, my mornings, I'm running outside. So I start my run when it's still dark. As I'm finishing that run, the sun is coming up. I see trees, I see green, my shirt's off. I can, I can feel the air. I feel like I'm waking up with the world. Mm -hmm. The way that I feel in those first couple hours of the day and the remainder of the day is completely different 
from days when I don't run. And that's why now, even if I don't have a run that I'm going to do, I'll just go run the dog for a mile or two mm-hmm. because it makes such a, a, a big difference. I used to always think it was just mental, but from, in your opinion, are there actual physical adaptations that are changing that will shift your mood and energy for the remainder of the day? Yeah, certainly so. So from multiple different systems, it probably does help shut off that light switch in the pineal gland to really say melatonin, we don't need any more of it. And then it also helps um, basically acclimate your adrenergic system. So you have your sympathetic system, that's your fight or flight, and you have your parasympathetic, that's rest and digest. And you have hormones like norepinephrine, which is noradrenaline and adrenaline itself and dopamine. And those can help be kick-started by um, being outside or a run in the morning, just not exactly the same, but similarly to how um, timing your caffeine or your coffee, let's say you time that an hour or an hour and a half after, that helps you dump your adenosine, take care of that, and then also get a concurrent cortisol spike. The next thing I wanted to ask about, those last like four to five weeks of my bodybuilding prep, I could not make it through a night of sleep. And I'm sure just being hungry was part of it. I'd wake up in the middle of the night hungry, but I would go every hour and a half, every two hours, waking up, rolling around in bed. I'd go to the bathroom. I was going to the bathroom every hour to hour and a half. Is part of that inability to sleep hormone regulation. Certainly. So in the hypothalamus you have, and this is like independent of the effects of ghrelin, Ghrelin uh, can increase when you're particularly hungry, and that has an effect um, in the pituitary and the hypothalamus as well. It actually can help stimulate growth hormone production. But uh, outside of that, you have your two main centers. You have your anorexogenic center, and that's kind of like exactly what it sounds like. You're not hungry, you're satiated, and you're tired. You just kind of feel like you want to sleep all the time. Then you have your orexogenic center. I... Um, called this the hangry center because you're hungry, you're awake, and you're agitated and angry as well. And there's two different receptors for orexin. Orexin activates the orexigenic center. And this is hyperactive, of course, when you're essentially purposely starving yourself during a bodybuilding prep. And there's actually orexin antagonists. So there's a one orexin inhibitor that just inhibits one of the orexins, and there's two different dual orexin inhibitors. And these are non-tranquilizing sleep medications, and they can be particularly helpful for bodybuilders in prep or just for the individual that has a hyperactive orexigenic center. Often when you're in a caloric deficit, you do see the quality of sleep drop off. Yeah, my, mine was absolute garbage for those last couple of weeks. And that's one of the things I was most excited about, that prep being done. I just wanted to make it through a night of sleep again. Mm-hmm. Because that for me, it was... Just I mean, it wrecks you for the day. I would, I would start getting nervous as the sun was coming down. It was getting dark. I knew sleep was coming up and I knew I couldn't sleep. Yeah. So I had like uh, a trauma from, from that experience. Yeah. No, it can definitely be very concerning. And that's one of the difficult things with orexin inhibitors is they're non-tranquilizers. So a lot of medicines like Lunesta or Ambien or uh, GABAergic or benzos will knock you out. And there's that feedback inhibition. That's the only thing that works and you have to have that for it to work. And then other medications, like let's say you took a dual orexin inhibitor um, for 
six or eight weeks. You want to start it before you really need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of seems like it doesn't work at all. And then your sleep does get a little bit worse, but it's much, much better than it would have been. Right. Well, the next pillar I want to talk about is stress. And I think most people would assume that you want to limit stress as much as possible in your life. But you also mentioned that you need cortisol. We want some sort of level of cortisol uh, in our life. We need it. Why is stress one of the health pillars and from what angle? Yeah. I mentioned that you want effort to feel good, regardless of that effort is lifting a very heavy weight. If that effort is trying to get a toddler dressed for uh, Sunday school in the morning, you want both of those things to feel good. So you want to teach yourself in order to uh, enjoy that stress. Now, um, in general, higher levels of stress, at least in animal models, you look at both dogs and wolf packs, the lead pack, so the alpha wolf, tends to have the highest level of cortisol, but not the highest level of testosterone. Interesting. Some animal scientists joke, and it's um, all the the female wolves or dogs that he has to look after that's increasing his stress. Yeah. So I think that's kind of funny as well. But um, So higher stress and being able to handle that stress is certainly a good thing. And I think individuals like Cameron Haynes and um, Huberman and David Goggins and others are good examples of having what you would think would be very stressful lives, but adapting very well to that. So is that a muscle that can be trained? Is that an adaptation that with more stress we add, we get better at? Or is that something we are genetically born with and it's, it's in our DNA? It's also both in this situation. And sometimes I joke that the answer to everything is it depends. But yeah. fortunately with long form podcasts, we have some time to explain why it depends. I was joking with my colleague and good friend, James O'Hara. He's a nurse practitioner that I do podcast with and the co-host of my Gillette Health podcast. And he was looking at his SNPs and one of them, and he is um, the most even keeled, uh, best handling stress person that I know. And he's particularly analytical and he, um, you know, he, he could be in a code and he would be calm, just like your uh, army ranger. One of his SNPs said, more prone to anxiety and, and dysregulated levels of stress. So he's, he's obviously learned to account for that, or perhaps he has other genes that um, kind of like do the, do the other thing. So there's no great strict genetic correlation between, you know, you have stress or you're not going to be able to handle your stress well, or you are, but you definitely see it's kind of passed down in families, but in that family, is that more nature or is that more, more nurture? Like we were talking about earlier, um, my toddler's watching, uh, my wife and I get ready for vacation. They're picking up all of those habits. Um, if we get stressed during that time, or if we're worried about something, then they start to exhibit those same actions. Is it, is it learned through behavior yeah. and observation? I think it's mostly learned. And it's like anything else. If you want to get to a high level of stress, then you don't start doing that right away. You use progressive overload. So that's why if people, like once you progress to lifting a very heavy weight, you're adding tiny little plates, maybe 2.5 pound plates or five pound plates at a time and going up very slowly, and then having periods of relaxation and rest. Going up very slowly, having periods of relaxation and rest, and you do the same thing with stressors in your life. Yeah, so you talk to entrepreneurs, business owners, or like year one, the smallest amount of, of, of stress and change, 
will make the biggest splash, the biggest impact. You look at that same person 10 years later and they can handle, I mean, chaos and catastrophe and, and damage and destruction beyond imaginable. So you just get better at, you know, dealing with that stressor. Mm -hmm. That's one of the interesting thing about uh, business owners and entrepreneurs from that side of not just hormone optimization, but from lifestyle habits that they have developed is often they're quite good, but not necessarily because there's a selection bias. The ones that have made it 10 years down the road, um, they will think that the way that they did it has to be the correct way just because they survived. And in a lot of cases, that's true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that adapting what they do is going to be beneficial in everyone's life. Right. No, I agree with that 100%. Let's talk about spirit. What, is, what does spirit mean to you? And how is that? Why is that a pillar of health? To me personally, um, I can, like, I'm spiritual. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I'm not particularly religious, but that just means you're metaphysical being. So in med school and residency, people are actually very familiar with this because we do a lot of end of life care, people that are very sick in the hospital and often their spiritual health. Um, the reason why they're here on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's called self-actualization at the top of the pyramid. That's the only thing that matters to them because their physical health is failing and their mental health might also be failing. Conversely, you see cases of individuals who are in an existential crisis. So basically, they don't know why they're here on earth. Um, perhaps they're happily nihilist. And they say there is literally no reason, but uh, it's like karma. Even saying, you know, there's no reason why I'm here. If you are very sure of that with in and of yourself, that starts to become the reason why you're here. Is you like to tell other people that you're a nihilist or you at least like to tell yourself that reason and that is a reason. So, um, just understanding what that reason is for you, even if it's literally nothing, it's a joke and it's a meme, then um, that can bring some sort of balance to your life to where that's not going to cascade and domino and uh, dysregulate your mental health or your physical health. Yeah, I'm listening slash reading a book right now. I believe it's called uh, The Courage to Be Disliked. And it kind of explains those concepts of, of finding happiness, uh, but actual happiness. And uh, the story you kind of alluded to was very similar to the chapter of the book that I just listened to. I would love for you to explain, you know, you said uh, you believe in God, you're a Christian, but not necessarily religious. Can you explain kind of the difference and what that means to you? Yeah. So um, at the end of the day, you have to think to yourself uh, partly analytically and also partly uh, like regardless of what you want to believe, you may believe something or you may not believe something. So what you want to believe is not always what you actually believe. So to me, the uh, like excess religion is an adulteration of the way that the human feels like we got here. So, Again, at the end of the day, you believe in uh, maybe artificial intelligence created us, but then who who made artificial intelligence? Perhaps ancient aliens. Perhaps uh, it was a process. It was completely evolution. Perhaps it was partly evolution. Perhaps it was a natural intelligence. That's the way I'd see God as just a natural intelligence. And to me, 
logically believing in a natural intelligence is easier than believing that an artificial intelligence designed things and also easier than believing that um, things purely happen by chance. Everybody can have a different reason and have good spiritual health. Um, we won't know and we'll probably never have a way to scientifically prove mm -hmm. um, like exactly why we're here and how we're here. But what I do know is that at least addressing that and being okay with talking about it, just like we're okay talking about mental health and sexual health and uh, all other aspects of health, I think it should be okay to talk about spiritual health without uh, a huge stigma or without people saying, you know, like you're a scientist or you're a doctor, you shouldn't be talking about spirituality. Um, on the contrary, I think it is vitally important. Yeah, you see that a lot of times where like, as soon as someone starts talking about spiritual health, it's I'll write this guy off. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like you lose all your credibility of what you just gained. Yeah. Have you found that with a lot of patients, um, people who haven't had some sort of spiritual health and then have introduced and incorporated and, and truly believed in something that it has changed their, their health and wellness? Yeah. Some people seem to enter this state. Um, again, I'd consider it existential crisis for lack of a better term, where they're trying to figure out um, like what group or what belief system they have. And sometimes it's extremely hard to believe. And one thing uh, in, in anything, whether it's uh, pure chance, artificial intelligence, natural intelligence, whatnot, um, but know that doubt is common and it's okay to doubt. Also know that it's okay to change your mind multiple times. So those are the six pillars of health. And I'm sure we could spend days and weeks on those. And I'm sure you actually have because um, it's the foundation of your practice. But I would really love to focus now on optimizing hormones. And, you know, I was talking to my wife about this because this is something I'm very interested in, passionate about, and, and I want to learn more. And when I naturally think of optimizing hormones, I think of my total testosterone, my free testosterone, LH, FSH, SHBG. And then my wife was talking to me and she's like, well, there's another part of the population, women who are focused on another part of the, you know, their hormone system. So I guess just to start kind of generally speaking, what are the differences that you're looking for in men and women when you're trying to optimize hormones? What, what hormones are you trying to optimize in women? What hormones are you trying to optimize in men to make the biggest impact? It's all the same hormones. It's just at different ratios and at different cyclical times, if it's a female. And to some degree, if it's a male, if you're looking at like time over their life, optimal hormone profile for a 15-year-old is certainly different than for an 80-year-old. Um, but that being said, one another thing to keep in mind is in females, menopause has, if you live long enough, there's a 100% chance likelihood that you will go through menopause, which I consider a pathology. And there is also a very high likelihood that at some point in your life, you will desire contraception. And um, most contraceptive options are essentially synthetic hormone replacement. Um, many people know that I am extremely passionate about synthetic hormones, whether it's estrogens, progestogens, or androgens. So if a provider is not comfortable providing hormone replacement therapy, then 
you, you probably should not choose that provider to manage your synthetic hormone replacement therapy, aka your contraception, whether it's the implant, whether it's an IUD, whether it's an oral contraceptive pill. So um, with that caveat out of the way, um, the main hormones to manage would be testosterone, estrogen, and by the way, even in females, most females have four times the amount of circulating testosterone as estrogen. Estrogen is in picograms per mil. Hmm. So let's say your estradiol is um, 100 and your total testosterone is 40. Your total testosterone in picograms per mil is actually 400 compared to 100. And testosterone does aromatize to estrogen. So testosterone is certainly a female hormone and estrogen is certainly a male hormone. The more estrogen a male has, the more they are protected against plaque buildup and cardiovascular disease. That's why you look at men that have very low both testosterone and estrogen. When you replace the testosterone, you're also replacing estrogen and their risk of developing a heart attack goes down. Whereas if you took a male that has a higher level of starting estrogen, but a similarly low testosterone level, that will not decrease the risk of plaque buildup and heart attack as much. I kind of want to take a step back. Birth control, contraception, how big of an issue is that that we're experiencing society because of the wrong people prescribing it that don't have the, the knowledge and information? It, just, it, it is a very huge issue, especially when it's not prescribed for contraception because it very seldom addresses the root cause. So uh, it's very common for 12, 13, 14 year old females to come in. They say, I just need a birth control pill. My periods are heavier. My periods are irregular. I have acne. My two sisters started the same thing. And instead of doing that, you do a workup and run labs and you see significant pathology, whether it's metabolic syndrome or PCOS or um, you know whatever it may be. Conditions like hypothalamic amenorrhea are much more common. That's basically the um, like low LH, low FSH, but in a female. And um, that can, it's on a spectrum too. So it can be very mild or very significant. But uh, like I mentioned, I'm a fan of addressing the root cause of those pathology. Just, I'm not anti-hormone, certainly, and I'm not mm -hmm. anti-synthetic hormone. I have many patients on synthetic hormones. But um, yeah, that would be my main message. And it, it's also a, an issue of supply and demand because one of the main health issues one of the main things that is a benefit in life is deciding when to and when not to conceive a child that can have profound uh, social health implications if you're not. So I definitely am very, very pro availability of contraception, but I'm also very pro education. I am for educating the population about both the benefit and the detriment of contraception for an individual that desires contraception, it is likely that the benefit of not having to conceive a child at that time far outweighs whatever detriments, even if there are many detriments, but they should understand what they are. What are the detriments of, you know, say, because I have a daughter, right? She's only 10 months old. Yeah. But say when my daughter's 13, 14 years old and all of her other friends are getting on birth control and she says, mom, dad, I want to get on birth control because all my other friends are on birth control and it's going to regulate my, my menstrual cycle and all these things. What's, what's the con of getting on too early and staying on for an extended period of time? There are dozens. A lot of them are minor, but um, several of the ones that you should be um, like familiar with is you will be attracted to different people. Really? 
It changes your, yes, it, you will be attracted to um, different individuals than you would have otherwise. And then if you come off, it returns back to baseline. You're essentially not having that, uh, if for most contraceptives, you're not having that ovulatory spike of estrogen and testosterone. And uh, you're, have, you're very different pheromonally as well. So if you meet your partner while you're on you know, birth control, and then you get off birth control, there's a chance that you are not attracted or like your partner. There's certainly longer. a chance. Although there's also that variation even within the menstrual cycle. So um, women who are ovulating are attracted to different individuals than when they're not ovulating. So it's not the end of the world. And I don't think that in and of itself that is degrading society. That's certainly more multifactorial. But, um, and part of that's just societal entropy. But that's important to know that when you go on, you your attraction to different individuals will change and that is due to the contraceptive. Another thing to keep in mind is risk of VTE. That's venous thromboembolism, blood clots in the leg or the lung. That's largely related to the change in platelets and SHBG. Another risk is depression. So um, if you look at, and by the way, for people that want to deep dive into this synthetic hormones, the Gillette Health Podcast has, I think, multiple episodes just on synthetic hormones and oral contraceptives and which ones, for example, levonorgestrel, which is an androlone-derived oral contraceptive versus drospirinone, which is a spironolactone-derived oral contraceptive, which ones are more likely to cause um, depressive symptoms or specifically the endpoint they looked at is admissions to psychiatric facilities and then being subsequently started on antidepressant or breast cancer. Um, uh, some have a significantly higher risk of um, hyperplasia, of the breast tissue. And then it's often started for conditions like endometriosis, which is uh, overgrowth of endometrial tissue um, because it can prevent you from having your period. But it's also a strong estrogen agonist and it can lead to increased IGF-1. So IGF-1 is going to grow all tissues, likely even endometrial tissue. And estrogen is also going to lead to that as well. Whether it's HRT or synthetic HRT, oral contraceptives, if you do not take an androgen with it, your free androgen index will also decrease significantly and that can affect your lean body mass and your body composition. Yeah, I remember when my wife was on birth control when we first started dating, um, there were times when she would go pick up her prescription and the, the doctor would just change the medicine completely. It was like this new medicine and she would feel completely different on this new this completely different medicine, which like blew our minds because she was struggling to regulate the way she was feeling based off of what medicine she was being prescribed. Yeah, no, it's pretty surprising. Uh, an analogy that I make mostly, mostly humorously is I wish women would give as much thought to their menstrual cycle as men, as bodybuilders did to their steroid cycle because a, a bodybuilding coach would not just randomly change the different, compounds that's in a cycle and conversely the doctor should also not change those compounds if there's a, a male and they're on a hormone usually a, an androgen or a synthetic androgen they want to know every single thing about that and they want to know its upsides and downsides and they want to find the perfect one and that's how people should approach oral contraceptives as well and there should also be no stigma against taking a low amount of an androgen whether that's DHEA or testosterone, or even a synthetic androgen along with an oral contraceptive. For, for women? Mm -hmm. Is that pretty common? 
it's not common, but um, hopefully I'm helping make it more common. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about next um, hormone replacement therapy, but at what point do you as a doctor prescribe hormone replacement therapy? As we were previously talking about before we started this podcast, telemedicine has become this phenomenon over the last couple of years. And it is easier now than ever to get prescribed hormone replacement therapy, testosterone replacement therapy, HRT, TRT, and, and telehealth is just prescribing it like it's Skittles out on a vending machine. Mm-hmm. You as a doctor, at what point do you start saying, okay, now let's start exploring medicine. What options do you exhaust prior to that? There's a false dichotomy between the conventional medicine system where you go to an endocrinologist, you're a urologist, you're a family doctor, and um, let's say you have a testosterone of 270. They say everything's perfectly normal. Maybe they don't even check it two or three times. And they say, don't even come back because everything is fine. And then on the other hand, you have telemedicine clinics. And um, I don't want to be too negative. Um, I'm still friends with Derek. I was medical director of his of his telemedicine clinic, which was Merrick, for a year. And I am all for access to healthcare treatments. They have a very, and most clinics like that have a very underserved, underinsured patient population. And it's great that they have good access to care. But we know that they almost always get a prescription of a hormone, probably a very short visit, usually not with an MD or a DO. And they also are often offered multiple other medications in the same visit. And they usually only have one visit with their provider per year. So that's not optimal, but the alternative to it is nothing. So just like safety net clinics in uh, underserved areas, they're areas with high HIPSA scores, but uh, basically those clinics are also known to not be the highest quality of clinic, but they're better than nothing. Also, just because the thesis is not true, it does not mean that the antithesis is true care that somewhere in the middle is best. But at this point, there's just not enough supply to meet that demand. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly doing my best. Um, and I have a lot of programs in the future to help educate healthcare providers. After every podcast I do, I have lots of people message me, doctors, nurse practitioners, and they say, um, how did you get to the point where you are and how can I do it? And um, it's basically because I tailored my education and did self-study, but I am putting that into a fellowship at some point, which I hope will help. But um, I guess the direct answer to the question is, yes, if you go to a telemedicine hormone clinic, you will extremely likely leave with a script. There's a study that was done within the last year or two, and they had what's called a secret shopper go to these clinics. It was a male. He turned in his labs. He had a total testosterone of over 700. And at very few clinics was he asked if he desires fertility in the near future. And at almost all clinics, if not all, I think all clinics except one recommended testosterone and the one that didn't recommended five or six other medications. Say a male comes in to work with you and you do blood work. What biomarkers are you looking at in terms of hormone health? And at what ranges are you looking for those to be optimal? total and free testosterone, optimal from a performance standpoint, whether it's cognitive or athletic. Ideally, your total testosterone is 500 or above. And ideally, your free testosterone is 
12 or above. Estradiol in men should be measured not by immunoassay, so it should, should be measured by LCMS, which is liquid chromatography with tandem mass spec, or equilibrium dialysis, also known as equilibrium ultrafiltration. Um, immunoassays are just not very accurate. For estradiol, you want that to be about two to three times your free testosterone. So if your free testosterone is 15, then your estradiol should be about 30 to 45. But in general, you want your estrogen to be as high as possible without symptoms of too much estrogen, like moodiness or gynecomastia. So in addition to that, I like to check IGF-1. That's your best proxy marker for growth hormone. And I also like to check TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, and free T4, and usually free T3 as well. Those are your um, thyroid hormones, free T3 being your active thyroid hormone. In addition to that, I like to check SHBG, which is sex hormone binding globulin. That's what binds androgens and estrogens. I also like to check cortisol and progesterone. Interestingly, cortisol and progesterone also share a binding globulin. Almost all hormones have binding globulins. For example, IGF-1 has several binding globulins. So almost all hormones have a total hormone and a free hormone, even IGF-1, total IGF-1, free IGF-1, and then hormones all have different receptors as well. So one example for testosterone is testosterone, DHT, DHEA sulfate, all androgens share one androgen receptor. And some people just have a more sensitive receptor and some people are less sensitive. On one extreme end is AIS or androgen insensitivity syndrome. It's where you have an extremely high testosterone you have your whole life, but you appear phenotypically female hmm. because you're completely insensitive to androgens. And then you have people that are hypersensitive to androgens. Um, oddly enough, a lot of these individuals have an IQ beneath 70 and um, a lot of uh, like issues secondary to hyperandrogenism, like pro early prostate cancer. And then you have everything in between. Um, that's determined by your mostly by your number of CAG repeats on your androgen receptor itself, it's on the X chromosome. So males only have one X chromosome and females have two. So whatever number of repeats you have, your androgen sensitivity, you can thank your mother for that. So what determines your ability to build muscle? Is it total testosterone, free testosterone, or is it the sensitivity of your androgen? Or is it none of that? Is it something else? For men, the primary input, and there's a lot of different vectors. Again, it's like a rock and you're pulling it with mo multiple ropes. For men, the biggest, strongest rope is how much gene transcription or how much the gene is activated that is the androgen receptor gene. Okay. So that does include the sensitivity. Um, you can look at individuals that have um, insensitivity to androgens, like, you know, 35 repeats, and individuals who are very sensitive to androgens, like 15 repeats. By the way, I think Romania is one of the countries with the most repeats, so the least sensitivity, and Zambia and a few other countries have very few repeats, something like 17 on average. But individuals with fewer repeats will have more muscle if you look at a population-based level study. Past that, androgen receptor density also matters. So the analogy that I make is the androgen receptor is like the door. The cell is like a house. And then total testosterone, free testosterone, that's going in and about the street, but it has to actually enter the cell. And then after it's in the cell, there has to be enough receptors that it binds to. Heat shock proteins is what regulates the density of the receptor. Things like tadalafil, carnitine, and even just testosterone itself, and estrogen actually, will upregulate the density of the androgen receptor. And uh, heat and cold exposure likely also 
are going to improve the density of the androgen receptor. That's the number of doors in the house. So your androgen walks into the house. It wants to go through the door. Let's say your androgen receptor is not very sensitive. It's like a steel core door. If it is sensitive, it's like a hollow core. It's easier to open. Even a weak androgen, like testosterone, which is a kind of like a mediumly medium strength androgen, can open it. But if you're an individual that has that is not very sensitive, then you might require something like DHT to open it. Not so much for the muscle building benefit, but for the feeling good, the neurologic benefit. That explains part of the um, individualized response to antiandrogens like finasteride and dutasteride as well. So hormone replacement therapy, testosterone replacement therapy isn't always the answer to increase androgen sensitivity. The androgen sensitivity, un like unless we develop a way to do it with CRISPR, you'll never change that number of CAG repeats. If you're a female, you can epigenetically change it between um, more sensitive and less sensitive. You can change the density. So if you start taking, like if you're deficient in L-carnitine or... Um, you know, some people start a low dose of Tadalafil, that can improve your androgen receptor density. But if you just overload the cell with androgen, then in most individuals that will help. But it's just like anything, law of diminishing returns. We look at studies that compare um, no testosterone to 25 milligrams of testosterone per week for men. That's worse. 50 milligrams, about the same. 100 milligrams a week, a little bit better. 200 milligrams a week, significantly better. But then that effect starts to diminish to some degree after 500 milligrams a week. So more testosterone, especially more free testosterone, does help build muscle. But at some point, which is genetically determined, partly due to androgen receptor activation, partly due to myostatin, which is highly genetic as well. And there's actually a myostatin inhibitor that's going through clinical trials right now. It's not YK11. Um, that's another genetic, genetically determined um, variable. The myostatin inhibitor, in theory, if you take that, you can build more muscle, correct? Especially if you concurrently have higher levels of free androgens and IGF-1. Isn't there like a cow that naturally like has a lot of myostatin inhibitor and it's those cows are absolutely jacked? It's the Belgian blue. It's the Belgian blue um, in utero. It's genetically passed down you have very low levels of myostatin. So you have significantly more muscle cells, both like actual muscle cells and satellite cells when you're born compared to the other individual. There are a lot of natural myostatin inhibitors. Um, epicyogatachin is another one or any epicatachin. Epicatachin is a mild myostatin inhibitor through its modulation on folostatin. Um, fortitropin is another myostatin inhibitor. Um, they have that for dogs of which my dog is on and they also have it for humans uh, it's basically a fertilized egg yolk protein i think that's another reason why if a pregnant lady eats a lot of let's say fertilized duck eggs like uh, probably michael hearn's wife ate that could be a reason why a child like his child could be born with a particularly good body composition with slightly less body fat than the average a child and slightly more lean body mass. So there's a lot of natural options that you can do as well. Um, egg yolks is probably, especially fertilized egg yolks is one of the good ones. Um, but the uh, monoclonal antibody, it's called bemagrumab, and maybe it'll turn out, maybe it won't. They just had a study released. My colleague James O'Hara 
posted about this on his Instagram. But over the course of about one year, the individuals that took it, they were either pre-diabetic or diabetic. They lost something like 15 to 20 pounds of body fat. Wow. And concurrently gained almost 10 pounds of lean body mass. One of the first obesity medicine medications, not the only, but one of the first ones in clinical trials that has that dual body recomposition benefit. That's incredible. I mean, for me personally, I'm not opposed to hormone replacement therapy, testosterone replacement therapy in the future. I've experienced lower testosterone, lower free testosterone, lower numbers altogether uh, the past couple of years that I attribute a lot to overtraining, stress, lack of sleep, building a business. And I know that there's lifestyle changes that I can make prior to using synthetic hormones. Again, not opposed to them in the future, but the reason that I'm not right now, one, I know that there's lifestyle changes I can make. And two, my wife and I are trying to grow our family. So we want more kids. What are some of the considerations people need to make prior to making the decision to use synthetic hormones that's going to affect their future? You know, you hear, you start it now, you're going to have to be on it for the rest of your life. You start it now, you can't have kids. Uh, what are the pros? What are the cons? What do people need to consider before using synthetic hormones? Yeah, it's just like starting any other medication. So you have your scale and you have your balance of benefit and detriment. And you take into account all of those in your specific situation. So there's something called a therapeutic window. And that's basically if they're very even, your therapeutic window is, is small. And then your therapeutic window is higher and higher. So you could take an individual who is like a perfect candidate for HRT. By the way, a couple definitions. Um, a lot of hormones are synthetic, even testosterone, which is bioidentical, is made mostly from yams and I believe sometimes soy, but usually from yams. Um, but in general, I call the bioidentical hormones, hormones that your body endogenously makes and uh, synthetic hormones, hormones that your body usually doesn't make. Um, so that's some definitions. In your specific case, when you're looking at how you can optimize things naturally, you would also have to ask yourself like, can you change your lifestyle? Because what you do is essentially part of your profession. Can you decrease the amount of ultra marathons you run or the amount of natural bodybuilding shows you do? Because those things are certainly going to be of detriment. There are a lot of things that you can do outside of uh, taking hormone replacement therapy to improve your function, but it's going to be more and more difficult to do so without a tool. Even a small tool like HCG and FSH those could be very reasonable tools that you can utilize during periods of caloric deficit or during periods of um, overtraining so that you feel better without affecting uh, other downstream sequela. How many blood tests should someone do prior to making that decision? Example, someone comes in, gets blood work done. That is a snapshot of, of their biomarkers in that period of time. And it's not, oh, I need to go get on... HRT, do you wait like three months and then do another series of blood work and then another three months and do a series of blood work? How many series of blood work panels do you do in between how much time? At least two. And ideally one of them is at what I call low tide and one at high tide. So if you're wanting to prevent damage to the beach, you're not just going to look at things at low tide. 
So you already have a set of biomarkers during high tide, right before a bodybuilding show when you're really depleted and also getting poor sleep. Um, the Depending on the academic society, most recommend either two or three fasted morning testosterone levels before considering TRT. But if you got two or three the same week that you did last time, they'd all be very similar. So waiting for a time when you're in a bit more of a caloric surplus and you're sleeping a bit better, that'd be more of a low tide level. If you just got those two, it would be reasonable. Do you think that the fitness industry has stigmatized testosterone replacement therapy because so many people in the fitness space use it as an excuse to get on exogenous hormones when in reality they're, they're doing a small cycle. You know, what's your opinion on that? Is TRT quote unquote steroids? What is the difference? Is it dose dependent? And are the wrong people using actual testosterone replacement therapy? Yeah. Most people on TRT, it's uh, like you said, it's essentially an excuse. I actually think that um, the fitness industry in general has done a decent job of destigmatizing testosterone use because previously it was abused much more often. And now a lot of people who would have previously abused if it was 20 or 30 years ago are now at least under the care of a physician that's looking out for them. So I think that all in all, that's a positive, just like, um, and this isn't a perfect analogy. And obviously like, I'm not trying to equate the use of androgen with the use of, uh, opioids or smoking, but in the last 40 or 50 years, there's also been public health programs to help more people stop using nicotine and use alternatives. Like uh, Tabex is one of my favorite, which is um, a nicotine receptor agonist, but there's other alternatives as well. Or um, help people get off of opioids like oxycodone and switch them to buprenorphine or even um, totally get them off and switch them to LDN. There's a lot of options there as well. Um, so it's better that they are not getting them from, uh, you know, dangerous sources. And a lot of people who had previously have self-administered TRT, a lot of them do need it. And the benefit outweighs the risk in that individual. But it's hard to say for everybody. Do so you think it's the widespread knowledge and accessibility to you know, TRT, HRT, has kind of closed down part of the black market of what used to exist mm -hmm. in the industry years ago. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I think if they shut it down, then it would be, it would remind me of prohibition. So during prohibition, um, people found ways to drink and it was dangerous and it led to um, other negatives um, because it was taken off the market. Prohibition, right. of course, the prohibition of alcohol. Um, so I certainly think that we shouldn't scale back the availability of HRT for men or for women, but we should educate both the patient population and providers on how to do it in the best way for the patient possible. Yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time doing my personal research and just trying to understand and learn pros and cons and especially based off my blood work, you know, my blood work comes back, my SHBG is skyrocketed. My LH, FSH, total free testosterone is tanked to the bottom. I'm trying to figure out the, the difference between the two. You know, I was recently reading that supplementation with boron can help 
uh, lower SHBG. I don't know your your thoughts on that, but I'm looking for all these ways to get my hormones back in range, not necessarily to change my body composition or improve performance, but just add vitality back to my life. And I'm, I'm curious your thoughts or experience with, with people who come into your, your clinic and are under your care. How many people are just trying to get back into range and feel better for their lifestyle, show up for their family, their job, their kids, as opposed to performance? Most individuals would be in the former category. And even the individuals who are primarily seeking after um, some sort of HRT for performance benefit often do so because that's the job or profession that they've chosen. So it's interesting in our society that there is such a stigma against doing things that are going to improve the performance in your profession. If you look at a lot of other countries like China, then they openly support um, basically anything that they can get away with in order to um, take the uh, child or the young individual and make them better at their profession, the right. best in the world. So I think that it is a very noble pursuit to try to be the best in the world. Now, if your profession is in, say, like a drug-tested federation, then obviously you shouldn't do anything that's against the rules there. But um, most individuals are in it because they want to improve what I'd call their health span, not necessarily their lifespan. Perhaps they've seen someone in their family go through hormone dysfunction, or maybe they've seen their mom go through menopause or their um, dad um, become you know, like excess body fat and lose a lot of muscle mass and strength. And they're trying to avoid that. So I think a lot of people want it for altruistic purposes. The issue is that they think all they need is the TRT script. And that's not the case. In fact, I, ha I have this conversation very frequently. I had it yesterday um, with someone as well. And they said, all you need is a doctor or an NP with a license that's willing to prescribe. That's all you need. Because it's easy to get someone into the range. It would be easy to take, um, in, in your specific case, to give your TRT, to get a lab, get a follow-up, maybe tweak it slightly up or tweak it slightly down, get them nice and even, maybe twice a week or three times a week, and the level would be good and that would be it. However, um, on the contrary, contrary, I think the opposite is true. It's one of the most complicated things to manage because it affects every system throughout the body. So you have to be well-versed in multiple organ systems um, hematology, lipidology, cardiology, dermatology even. Um, and if a patient thinks that they're not having any side effects, the patient's not going to volunteer that information. They might be having plaque buildup in a coronary artery and they won't know that for 30 or 40 years. So being able to um, have like a, a broad spectrum approach to each patient like that um, is vital to the to give the best quality patient care. So many people are on HRT, both male and female now, that um, you know we're not gonna be seeing the huge population trends for 20, 30, 40 years down the road. How do you start by finding the right doctor? I mean, the first time I'm thinking of like, well, this is scary. Like, how, you know, if, if everyone thinks they can get someone in range, what are the questions people should be asking their doctors to know if it's the right doctor? There's a couple, uh, I guess, criteria is one, ideally it would be an MD, a DO, or an NP, possibly a PA that works with an MD. And then two, find a provider that's going to 
listen to you well and take your goals into account. Find someone that is not incentivized to and not paid by selling more medication, selling more supplements. They're paid by um, the high quality medical advice that they give to you. And then find someone that's not going to be biased by what I call personal anecdote fallacy. That's the fallacy where um, they have done a specific thing in their life that has been amazing for them and they want to apply that to every single individual. For example, the peptide doctor that healed his um, muscle tear or, or tendon tear with a peptide. By the way, I have done that. I healed an adductor tear, uh, tendon tear with BPC-157, but I don't give that to everybody with a tendon tear. Or, um, you know, a fertility doctor that has like one specific fertility protocol that he or she is recommending to everybody because it worked for them years ago. So those are the main things to look for. However, that being said, another important quality is if they are going to be affordable within your budget, a lot of costs are hidden. So even if you're only paying a very low amount, only a couple hundred dollars, supposedly like a no obligation consult or whatnot, then often the margin or the cost is built into everything else. So knowing what, uh, for example, an average spend would be or um, knowing what you will spend over a long period of time. For example, if you go through insurance, then you're probably going to spend up to your out-of-pocket max. And even then, um, things will not be covered very well. For most people, like when do you recommend people to start getting blood work done? Because I didn't get my first blood work panel done until I was 28 years old. Like how soon is too soon or like what is the right age to start getting it done on an annual basis? For a baseline panel, just getting labs and not doing anything about them, 18 is reasonable or 20 or very early. In general, you don't want to get labs unless you're going to have a change in management. However, what a lot of healthcare providers forget is that change in management might be years down the line. So if you got a comprehensive blood panel on someone who's 20 or 22 and they're a high level athlete, their total testosterone might be 1200, their free testosterone might be 30 or 35 um, compared to, let's say they got that baseline blood panel and their baseline is, uh, even though they're a high level athlete, a total testosterone of 550 and a free testosterone of 12, then 10 years down the road, they're having some symptoms. Their total testosterone is 350 and their free testosterone is six. Knowing that previous level that they were accustomed to can tell you more about the context and can change your management because you know that this is their baseline and you would want to get them back to their baseline. So if you were there at some point, you typically can get the body back there by addressing the issue. At least on its normal trajectory. So think of a growth curve in children where you expect weight and height to increase along a percentile. It's kind of the same way except downhill a little bit. So let's say your total testosterone is 1,000. On average, you expect a decrease of about 5 to 10 nanograms per deciliter total T per year. So 10 years later, then perhaps it's 50 to 100 points lower. But you would want, so even if they dip down past that, you want to get them back to where they would have already been on their natural trajectory. I'm curious, you know, say you have an 80 or 90 year old male, what's the highest testosterone you ever seen in someone like that old? 900s. Wow. Was yep. he just thriving? Uh, endogenously produced, of course. Um, he was doing, he was doing well. Um, 
oddly enough, he did have some symptoms of higher testosterone, higher dopamine, like uh, premature ejaculation. That's ten, that tends to be um, more dopamine, less serotonin. That's why sometimes we do things that increase serotonin to help with that compared to delayed, which is usually the opposite, lower dopamine, high, higher serotonin. That's why a lot of SSRIs cause uh, delayed. Even if it's not pathologic, things are definitely more delayed. Um, but anyway, that's kind of an aside. Um, he did have a lot of other medical things, but that just might be observer bias since generally people come to see me if they have something going on. Right. So there could be a lot, there likely is a lot of individuals like him that are in general thriving. He didn't have metabolic syndrome. He didn't have sleep apnea. Um, he was very active. He exercised a lot. He dieted a lot. He slept well. So he had a lot of the pillars of health checked off. So after, like, what age typically does it start, do hormones start declining? 25 or 30. Okay. And from there, it's just all down, down downhill. Statistically, yes. And just like... Uh, strength and Andy Galpin talks about how even in older ages you use it or you lose it if you use it and you have good diet and good exercise you can maintain a lot of your strength and uh, body composition into older age and that's somewhat true with hormones but there's also a genetic component and likely an epigenetic component as well where regardless of what you do some individuals they nearly inexplicably have very low testosterone even early in age that's incredible. Well, Kyle, I appreciate this conversation. Super insightful. And uh, like I was telling you, this is something that I've been doing a lot of research on the past couple months because it's something that I'm experiencing. I'm, I'm trying to learn how to navigate uh, this next chapter of life. And, you know, you've been an amazing follow on social, you, the, all the podcasts you've been on, your own podcast, super insightful and, and great info. So for the, the listener, highly recommend watching and listening to everything Kyle produces because it's, it's very informative. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's a wrap. <laughs>